Welcome to episode 28 of the Known Pleasures podcast, and we are back in the studio. Here we discuss the post-punk slash new wave movement of the late 70s and early 80s. Now, if you like the music featured in this podcast, you can click on the link in the description and it will take you to a Spotify playlist created just for this episode. You can now find us on Amazon Podcasts as well as Spotify. Now, here's Mark to introduce today's band. If 1978 can be regarded as year zero for post-punk, the magazine were already wide awake when day one dawned. Releasing their debut single in January of that year, they went on to produce four diverse and challenging albums, but by 1981, they'd reached the final chapter and quietly folded. So, we ask, did the men from magazine pen one of the most notable chapters in the glorious annals of post-punk history, or were they just a minor footnote in the back bit that no one reads? The thing that I find most difficult about the Howard DeVoto story is where do you start? As we know, his story starts with Buzzcocks, and we'll be covering them in a separate podcast. So this is something we talked about prior to recording, you know, where do you start? And we thought that perhaps the release of the Buzzcocks first EP, Spiral Scratch. The Spiral Scratch EP, absolutely. January 77 was as good a place to start as any. Well, I, I think that's a good point to start, but I would also like to mention that he and Pete Shelley were friends and had organised the first Sex Pistols gigs in Manchester. I uh, yep. got them up there and, and subsequently played in the second one with them. Uh, those very influential gigs that so many people from the Manchester post-punk scene attended. So yeah, I agree with you, that is a good place to start because it was a, kind of a short-lived career with the Buzzcocks and it, as soon as it kind of happened, he left. Boredom. He became the Stephen Tin Tin Duffy of the Buzzcock. Well, <laughs> leaving before they became successful. This is a Duran Duran reference, isn't it? <laughs> it was a Duran Duran reference. <laughs> as good as anything. <laughs> well, fluke, was, I fluked that one. <laughs> it was released in January 77 and he left in February. And I love this quote where he says, What was once unhealthily fresh is now a clean old hat. So he was already over it. By then. <laughs> he did stick around and managed, you know, to get them a few gigs and did a bit of promotion for the band. So it was all it was fairly happy yeah. split. It was an acrimonious at no, all. No, you kind of assume that there's going to be this great kind of schism mm. between them, but it seemed very good natured. I think it was a small world in that mm. in that scene. And, and there's a quote from John McGeoch when he meets Hal Devoto that there was really about 30 punks in Manchester at the time, <laughs> and he was one of them, so it was natural that you'd get put together with, with the other guys who were also into this scene. It was a little bit behind London, so, you know, by 77 there was a little clique of yeah, guys yeah. into the music, but not a lot of people. Mm. It does say a lot about the either the visionary nature of Howard DeVoto or just his complete lack of concentration and focus that to decide in February 1977 that punk you know, is a bit limiting. This is it's three, old hat. This is this is three months before God Save the Queen is released. <laughs> yeah, it's over. It's done. It's done. This was fun, but it's done. Yeah, he's certainly highly quotable, Howard. And uh, yeah, um, a quote that I liked was, um, "I was tired of noise and short of breath." Yeah, and, I like that as well. And it was kind of time to move on. So he placed an ad. In Virgin Records, Windows. And I've got the quote in front of me, and I bet you do as well. Howard DeVoto seeks other musicians to perform and record fast and slow music. Punk mentality not essential, come woodwind, brass or fire. Wow. I love that. Woodwind. Yes. There's a punk noun that isn't used enough. (laughs) I think he was working with with John McGeoch at this point. Or they'd done a few songs together in his bedroom or so something. a young Scottish guitarist. Young Scottish guitarist, mm-hmm. um, born in 1955. So at this point, you know, he was... Yeah, 22 he was, odd. He was young enough, but not, to, you know, ready to go. And uh, a very proficient guitarist he was at that point. He had actually been taught by Mark Knopfler, would you believe, oh, okay. at Redbridge Technical College in the early 70s. So he, he'd learnt his scales and his chops. <laughs> I wonder what magazine would have sounded like if he kept up that Mark Knopfler guitar technique. So the two of them started looking around and, um, yeah, placed that ad. And um, a couple of people that were interested, or three of them that were interested. A couple of flautists. Yes. <laughs> that replied to the ad. Uh, Barry Adamson, uh, Martin Jackson and Bob Dickinson the uh, original other three members of magazine. And it was quite something to find 
a young guitarist who would turn out to be one of the great post-punk guitarists, mm. a bass player who would turn out to be one of the great post-punk bass players. Yeah. Barry Adamson had never played bass before. It was his first band. Ah, really? He'd been given a bass that had two strings on it. He went into town to buy another two, saw the ad in Virgin Records and was just inspired to call this person up. He knew how devoted from the Buscocks and he just said it was a decision I made that changed my life and I just had to do it. Mm -hmm. So he went home that night, placed the head of the bass on the bed head so he could get some vibrations from the wood of the bed head and just kind of mucked around with it all night or however long he had until he met Howard and then kind of went through a few songs when he met him. Kind of obviously bluffed his way through that he could do the job. Yeah, he was yeah. 18 or 19 at the time. Yeah. And right, you're in magazine with your four strings. Yep, yep. <laughs> and it took them a very long time before their first single came out by post-punk standards. Uh, January 78. Mm. Now, this is an argument that we, we've had before about if, if this is the first post-punk single mm. because we've mentioned uh, Public Image's debut, October 78, Hong Kong Garden, August 78. Patrick, I know you're going to make a case for Dangerous Rhythm by Ultravox in February. <laughs> Am I? February 77, <laughs> as opposed to January 78. But let me just say, I'm going to say Shot by Both Sides is the first post-punk single ah, because Magazine were, the, were a post-punk band. I don't think Ultravox mm. quite qualifies. And Dangerous Rhythm's a reggae song. <laughs> mm. Well, you're refuting an argument that I wasn't about to make, but nonetheless. <laughs> but you have privately mentioned that to me before. <laughs> I have no recollection of that and um, I refute the premise of your argument. So you agree with me or disagree with me? <laughs> I'm not sure yet. <laughs> I'm confused myself. <laughs> sides, we should say something about the keyboard player. Bob uh, Dickinson was his name. Ah, okay. Yeah, I don't know much about him. He was kind of classically trained, a bit of an odd fish in a way. I don't think he kind of fit with the band, mm. but he contributed enough to the six demos that they oh, okay. had recorded in 77 to kind of get this uh, off the ground, play a few gigs. I don't think he only played a handful of gigs with them. Yeah, mm. yeah. But they sort of quickly became the hottest thing in town, you know, because how Devoto had this background with Buzzcocks. And I think the media just lapped it up because he was kind of intellectual and a bit mysterious mm. and enigmatic. Um, well, he was the man for 1978, that's, according to Paul Morley, is that right? In well, I think it was in front of the NME or Melody Maker, mm, one of those yeah, magazines. Yeah, yeah. They basically built him up in a time-honoured fashion <laughs> to uh, later pull him down, which we'll, we'll talk mm, about. Shot by both sides, he was. Exactly right. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so they, they kind of got off the ground pretty quickly and got this, this mm. single out. It's a great single. It's there. a great single. Just, has yeah, no keyboards on it though, because mm. he, Bob Dickinson had already left at that stage. Had he, had he left by the time they I think, it? I think he okay. had, yeah, because there's no keyboards on it. So they managed to um, get in touch with the, uh, well, their founding, really founding keyboard player, Dave Formula, who uh, his real name is Dave Tomlinson, but mm. that didn't sound very post-punk. <laughs> no, I thought you were going to say real name, Malcolm Formula. Yeah. <laughs> That would have been good, actually. <laughs> Damn. Um, apparently he got the name by driving past a petrol station and saw an ad for, like, New Formula something or other petrol and said, that sounds kind of cool. I'm going to okay. be Dave Formula. <laughs> and that is kind of cool. Do you know how Devoto got his name? Um, I do, but I can't remember. Apparently he took his name from his philosophy tutor. <laughs> Howard uh, Trafford was his real name. Is his real name. Yeah, his philosophy tutor told a story about a bus driver in Cambridge who apparently had the surname Devoto. And right. Howard Trafford thought that was a great name. Pete McNeish preferred the poetic surname Shelley. So It was the time of taking these names, wasn't it? Mm. The punk era. You couldn't just be whoever. You had to have a kind of an exciting surname. Mm. And the Spiral Scratch EP was produced by Martin Zero. Later to go on to fame as Martin Hennett. Yes. Absolutely. Who will come to him. will come to him as well. Can I just... Throw in a little fun fact about Dave Formula, and you might know this too, Patrick. He mm. had a bit of a career previously with the St. Louis Union, a band in mm. the 60s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, had been on top of the pops. Yeah. Had a bit of a hit, maybe a top 20 hit. I can't hit, remember. Uh, number 11 Ooh. with a song, uh, a, Beatles, 20. a Beatles cover <laughs> of the song Girl. Okay. And they did the, I think it might be pronounced St. Louis Union. I think the Americans like it to be pronounced St. Louis. And they were St. Louis Union were originally known as the Satanists, that's, which is that's a proper pop not name. a very top of the pops friendly <laughs> band no. name. 
and they won the Melody Maker National Beat Contest in August 1965. This is how far back the keyboard player from magazine went. And they defeated Pink Floyd in this contest and... Kenny Everett, the comedian Kenny Everett, was one of the judges. Wow. So that's a national beat contest. If that, you beat Pink Floyd and Kenny Everett was one of the judges. Well, well I think it was you, brilliant. Patrick, that said, or maybe it wasn't you, that um, that Dave Formula is the Andy Summers of this particular story because he was way older than everybody mm. else. He was um, born in 1946. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, Graham, I know you love these stories about old musicians making it. Um <laughs> He was, you know, he was kicking on by the time punk <laughs> rolled was. around. It's not so much the age thing. Um, like if these musicians, like in the 70s, went from psychedelic rock to heavy rock, for instance, um, that wouldn't have been a, a major transition. Mm. Mm, but mm, there was mm. nothing about punk that appealed to an older generation. Yeah. So when a, like a Jet Black or an Andy Summers come along and uh, make that leap, change the way they play music and even you know, change the colour of their hair, I think it's uh, I think it's amazing. I I think it should be applauded. There was a very definite rule book. Birth date was one of the rules. Song length, mm. which we're about to get to. No solos. <laughs> <laughs> no guitar solos. Yep. Is another one. Um, regarding Shot by Both Sides, it got to number 41 in the charts, which was pretty good going, and they were denied a top 40 spot by Queen, a song I've never even heard of, Spread Your Wings. Oh, Spread Your Wings is a great song. On the uh, News of the is World. Is it better right? than Shot by Both Sides? Mm. No, it's not. <laughs> the, the guitar line of Shot by Both Sides, the riff, was written by P. Shelley. And just for our music nerd listeners, it's a Lydian mode scale. Ah, okay. So what what gives it that tension is there is a sharpened fourth note. Now, if our music nerd listeners think that that's wrong, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> well, didn't it become a song by the Buscocks anyway called Lipstick? <laughs> Can I just get you to edit in a little story that Dave Formula also played with a, in a band called Gyro in 1975 with Paul Young, oh, wow, okay. the, the later-to-be soul singer who had great success in the uh, in yeah, the 80s. Yeah. So he had really been around it and was very, very proficient. Yeah. And it's a similar story that we see with some of these bands. There'll be like one guy that's actually been around the traps quite a bit, and Dave was definitely that guy. And then you've got Barry Adamson and had never played a bass yeah. before. I mean, <laughs> yeah. fantastic stuff. Okay, shall I say that Paul Young did the definitive version of Lovell Terrace Park? <laughs> Maybe I won't say that. No, I think you should. Throw that <laughs> yeah. in there. That's great that stuff. That is now on public record. One thing in terms of uh, drawing together a couple of things we've already been talking about, Radiohead have been known to do a cover of uh, Shot by Both Sides. And even as recently, although Radiohead have been around for, for a long time, but during their um, their difficult Kid A era, they were playing that as part of their live repertoire, so around around 2000. Well, I think we could probably talk at length about how influential magazine have been, but particularly on bands like Radiohead. I mean, when I go back and listen to this stuff, I hear where Radiohead drew so much inspiration from. Mm, mm. Um, and, you know, they've made no secret of that either. Um, yeah. I think the two Greenwood boys uh, said correct use of soap was a well-played album in their household when they were growing up. And in the O'Brien household as well, Ed O'Brien. Oh, sorry. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just a fixture mm. with with, um, with Radiohead because the yeah. sound is very reminiscent and has elements of a lot of that sort of stuff, particularly the bands and albums like that. But anyway, yeah, we, yeah. we could talk about that. I should add that as far as quality control goes, Radiohead have also been known to play Rhinestone Cowboy, the Glenn Campbell <laughs> song live. So, you know, it's not it's not necessarily the final it's kind of... It's not a good thing. And I do really like the lyric in Shot by Both Sides. Shot by Both Sides, they must have come to a secret understanding. Now, there's a lot of subtext there, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, apparently the title of the song comes from a woman he was dating at the time. He was taking the, as Howard Devoto would do, um, the devil's advocate role of saying, yes, but what about this? And she sort of got exasperated with him and said, you'll end up being shot by both sides, <laughs> which I think he was quite happy with and he made a mm. note of that and, uh, and made a song out of it years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say one more thing about Radiohead. Johnny Greenwood said that no guitarist inspired me more than John McGeoch, magazine guitarist. So mm-hmm. 
I mean, Johnny Greenwood's acknowledged as a pretty amazing guitarist in his own yeah, right. So yeah, that's that's yeah. a real praise. Should, Are we going to real life? Well, there's the second single, Touch and Go, which was released before that. But yeah, the first album, Real Life, June 1978, produced by John Leckie, who went on to do the Bends for Radiohead. Mm. <laughs> so there you go. And Stone Roses, self-titled. And other things, Debut, yeah. Simple Minds, first three albums. By this time, though, uh, the keyboard player had quit before the album was recorded. Yes, so we now did have Dave Formula. We now have Dave, and Martin Jackson, uh, the original drummer, left almost immediately after the album was released. So we've got a little bit of turmoil there. Touch and Go came out as a single. The album came out, did well. This album was probably too successful. It reached number 29, Mm. and, you know, the world was at magazine's feet in a way. Um, there's some great tracks on there. Yeah, I read a review that said, how could one record contain so many killer songs? Mm. There isn't a weak spot to be found. I don't know whether I totally agree with that. <laughs> there's some ones that I really like. Definitive Gaze starts off like a, a soundtrack to it, like a cheesy horror movie. It segues quite seamlessly into um, this wonderful piece, which is in a major key. then there's this weird sort of tension-filled bit in the minor key. It's just a really interesting song. I love Definitive Gaze. Mm. Yeah, and shot by both sides, Motorcade. Motorcade's great. I think Light Pours Out of Me is one of the highlights on that album. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I love that kind of funk element that it's introduced, and I think that's something, certainly at the start of the track, that that other bands weren't even really touching on. You've got some great musicians in here and all of a sudden they just seem to sound like a mm. fully formed band mm. out of nowhere. You've got Howard with his kind of literary pretensions, which made him interesting and kind of weird. He had a stage presence mm. with his makeup and his kind of weird sort of stance. They had everything going for them. It was just all waiting to happen. Mm. <laughs> John, John McGeoch played sax on that last song too, on Parade. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yes, that's right. He did play a bit of sax, didn't he? Yeah, I think he played on, on a couple of the albums he played sax. Talented guy. He was very talented, wasn't he? I um, feel like I'm shot by both sides and the light pours out of me are uh, way, way, way better than anything else on the album. I like the rest of the album, but it does feel kind of quite patchy to me, a little bit like a band that's still finding its feet. Mm. Well, they literally were, um, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And, which is understandable given that they were in the midst of helping to invent a genre of music. So it's fair enough that they were still... You know, well, this is less than 18 months after they formed. Mm, yeah, Like yeah. the album is out in June, 78. The Light Pours Out of Me, I just think, is just one of the post-punk classic mm. tracks. Great it's just, chorus, yeah. everything, yeah. And really a tricky song to get your head around, the mm. counter-rhythms of how the bass is working with the guitar line and those sorts of things. Is, mm. You kind of really need to concentrate to work out what's going on. It's quite sophisticated, isn't it? As we Mm. say, for this time, for June 78, punk's hardly been dead six months, if you like. Yeah, yeah. And this is the way forward. And I'm going to make the case that Magazine should be regarded as extremely important, if not one of the most important post-punk bands, because they showed the way that Mm. guitar could could go forward. Mm. It didn't have to be three-chord thrashing. Bass could be prominent. Yeah. Um, lyrics could be intelligent and have something to say rather than shouting at you because punk had kind of devolved into Oi yeah. and Sham 69 and all that kind of stuff mm. at this point, which is fine for some people, but other people wanted to take it somewhere else. And this was one of the very first examples of it. So mm. I'm a fan of Real Life. I think it's a great album. It's not my favourite magazine album, but I think it's certainly a worthy album. Mm. Um, you've said how you feel, Patty. There's a bit of Ultravox in some of the songs. There's Actually, I shouldn't say this. I'm going to be shot by both sides. I'm physically sitting between the mm. two of you. And I think <laughs> you, will be, you will be shot by both sides. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, um, one song, uh, Burst, mm. has a bit of a like a rock opera kind of feel to it. And I remember listening to it because I didn't know the album very well, listening to it and going, what band does this remind me of? And it reminded me of Spinal Tap. Hundreds of years before the dawn of history, 
race of people. The Druids. And I could picture the twin guitar attack of St Hubbins and Tufnell. <laughs> <laughs> you know Graham's going to put that in now. <laughs> that isn't even really a criticism. It just That was just what popped in, into my head. And Howard does describe this album as charmingly naive. And I think there is a little bit of that to the album. So if the album had been extremely cohesive from beginning to end, it would have been an absolute miracle. I mean, it was just about the first genuine post-punk album, although, funnily enough, the week it entered the charts, The Stranglers Black and White was in the top ten, New Boots and Panties was in the top ten, Tom Robinson Band was in the top ten. But Magazine would, I think, probably a little bit ahead of those bands in terms of musical inventiveness. I'd put Black and White in the same mm, conversation for me. Yeah, Yeah, you know how we've mentioned before that uh, a few new wave bands like to use the uh, 3-4 Waltz time signature. Mm, yeah, mm. yeah. And the Great Petition in the Sky is almost like a, this carnival ride. But there's some pretty proficient keyboard on that sort of stuff too. Mm. It's like pretty out there in the way that the Stranglers are also doing. It's kind of uncool to have synths and keyboards, remember, at this yeah. time too. It wasn't yeah. the done thing. No, it was also probably uncool to reference songs from Dark Side of the Moon yeah. as well. Very. <laughs> the uh, Great Dig in the Sky from... from ah, of course. Wow, okay. Well, no wonder they're setting themselves up here mm. for criticism. Um, so, yeah, look, we all agree it was a, a good first statement. It was mm. a great first statement. Shall we uh, turn the page to Secondhand Daylight? I'm going to keep doing the, the magazine puns as we go. Yeah, you, you should. Well, I did it in the intro. Uh, well, we've also got the single Give Me Everything between these two. Yep. Which is a non-album single, which they mm. like to do, as we know. It's a very yeah, post-punk yeah. thing to do. I really lo- love that song as well. Great guitar break from John McGeoch anchors that song. Um, and uh, grinding bassline. Exactly, yeah. Gang of Four. Yeah, 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 very much so. In terms of the Gang of Four kind of connections, um, Gang of Four's first single was Damaged Goods, which was released around about the same time. So who influenced who is kind of an interesting question, I think. Yeah, I mean, this is still very early days for a lot of things. This is pre-Joy Division, you know, pre-anybody really mm. that you want to talk about. If we're going to talk about Secondhand Daylight, now the second album we are, Yeah. released in March 1979, I'm going to come out and say it, that I'm going to be extremely biased about this because I regard <laughs> this album as my, one of my top five post-punk yeah. albums. <laughs> if, you'd like, five. if you'd like to mm. go back and listen to that episode, feel free. <laughs> um, I really, really can't sort of uh, overstate how pivotal this album was for myself and uh, two of my very good uh, long-standing friends, Colin and Curtis. This is like a real album that made an impact on us. And, and I actually owe uh, Curtis the debt of he had seen magazine the following year and went out and bought this album and kind of introduced us to it. I was familiar with some of it, but uh, probably Permafrost, which we'll talk about later, but I had no idea of the uh, the majesty of this album until I kind of got a chance to listen to, to it. Unfortunately, it was slated by the, the media and the press and it was really quite uh, hard on the band. Yeah, yeah. They were kind of really disappointed and upset with the the backlash against them that this album provoked. Apart from Nick Kent, who said it had an austere sense of authority, Mm. which I love as a description. I think that's a great way of describing it. It did break the punk rule book. They strayed far beyond the three and a half minute mark. Mm. Every second song was five minutes plus. They had varying tempos in certain songs. Organ, keyboards, Mm. saxophone again. (laughs) They were unafraid of a slow tempo. Mm. A couple of songs that could be almost Pink Floyd songs, Mm. sound-wise. Well, The Thin Air is one that's often Mm. referenced as could be a Pink Floyd song. The opening track, Feed the Enemy, almost sounds like an underproduced Floyd song with a singer who is a slightly more enigmatic than the Pink Floyd vocalists. I'll mm. say that's one of my all-time favourite songs of theirs. Mm. Yeah, the Feed the Enemy is fantastic. The slow version, not the live, faster version. Mm. 
It was produced by Colin Thurston. They mm. originally wanted John Barry, the uh, film composer, yep. James Bond, amongst yep. other things. Couldn't get him or he was in LA and so the band would have had to go to LA to record the album, which Virgin couldn't quite stump up for. But uh, Colin Thurston had worked on Heroes, uh, David Bowie's album, and Lust for Life, Iggy Pop's album, which were two yep. big, yep. big post-punk influences. He gave it a kind of what, what I regard and other people regard as a cinematic quality. It had a big sound, mm. it was widescreen. And that was a lot of where the criticism came from as well, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that he had overproduced it. But it sounds like the future. This is March 1979, and I listen to it now, and it still mm. doesn't sound dated yeah. to me. I think it's just an incredible-sounding album. Mm. Well, they did apparently try to get Tony Visconti, right? who could have done a lot more for magazine than most people think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think this was Colin Thurston's first solo production job. He co-engineered and produced those albums you mentioned with uh, Visconti. In, That's right, yeah. For financial reasons, I think they couldn't get Visconti, but... Well, he went on to do Duran Duran. <laughs> yeah. Thurston. That's uh, one of his yeah. big claims to fame. Yeah. I do remember, I wasn't a huge magazine fan, and I remember in around about 1982 when you and I were about 18, we were talking about magazine and I mentioned the album and I was saying, what's it called? And I, and I, and I said, Secondhand Delight. And you, you acted. That's a great song. <laughs> you, you acted as if I'd misquoted the Ten Commandments. Well, was, that's pretty much yeah, how I feel. Secondhand delight. But also around that time, um, I did hear the debut cassette of the band that you and Curtis and Colin were in, um, Head Cut, uh, a nine-track cassette Yeah, called Something to Hold Your Faith Onto, Correct. which was almost quoting a magazine. <laughs> well, it was a misheard uh, <laughs> line from um, Rhythm of Cruelty, the, um, the second song, which was also a single mm. from this album. The thing that struck me listening closely to these albums in preparation for this podcast, that I didn't know the albums very well, and I was really struck by how much magazine sounded like head cut. <laughs> well, I'm sure that that was their ambition. <laughs> I still love this album. I, I could listen to it. I think I said in the top five, I could listen to it over and over again. But they were absolutely slated for this album. Mm. It still bugs the hell out of me. There was a guy from Sounds magazine called Dave McCulloch who um, just laid into Howard on a really personal level. And in one, one of his quotes about well, Give Me Everything, the single that preceded this was, they're really the Muppets in disguise, he said. Look, Howie, why don't you sod off, you baldy little pain? I mean, what's that got to do with the song, Dave? <laughs> you know, you don't like Howard. I, mm. can, I can see that, but it's getting really nasty and yeah, personal. Yeah, Whereas yeah. the previous year, they'd been the man of the year and the, the saviours mm. of, of punk. It was almost like they dared to do something, you know, exciting and a little bit mm. different. And pushed, as you said, pushed themselves into different territory. And, oh, no, you can't do that. You can't mm. do that. Absolutely slammed for them. And I think they couldn't believe it themselves. They were quite shocked at what happened to this album. Yeah, yeah. It's still Barry's favourite, Barry Adamson's oh, favourite. Okay. So that, that tells me something. Yeah, yeah. I love cut-out shapes yep. as well. Again, like a slower slower tempo and a real kind of groove to it. But the, I think, obvious standout track, and I know you've talked in the podcast about our top five albums, about song Permafrost. Mm. Thunder shook loose hail on the outhouse again. This has got to be one of the greatest opening lines of a song. It's just <laughs> poetry. It's absolutely stunning. Mm. And that song, Graham, you'd remember this, was was flogged on Triple Z. I mm. probably was one of the very first magazine songs I heard. Was this. As the day stops dead At the place where I was introduced to them via Triple Z in Brisbane. Mm. So whatever they were playing, I really liked. And it was on the, that basis that I went and saw them live. Yes, you went to the gig, which was mm. um, 1980? Mm. Yeah, it was a little, little, little bit later. September -ish. September. Now, they weren't um, top of the bill. They were, you can tell the story, but there was a lineup that night 
Well, there was. Are we jumping a little bit ahead here? I can, um, I can talk about it if you like. Yeah, well, I think it's probably worth talking about that gig because... Hmm. Uh, I was going to mention that they released an album much later on, a live album called Magazine Live and Intermittent. And I was going to mention that because the last eight songs were recorded at a place called The Family Inn in Rydalmere. Anyway, that show was on the 20th of the 9th, 1980, and I saw them on the 19th of the 9th, 1980. So I saw them the night before Uh this show. So if you ever want to know what magazines sounded like on that night, you just have to listen to um, (laughs) Magazine Live and Intermittent. But they supported XTC and the first band on the night was very young in excess, the first time they'd been in Brisbane. And uh, and the other Australian band Flowers were on. Who became Ice House. Who became Ice House. Mm. And it was, and probably still is today, one of the best concerts I've been to. For all four bands or one in particular? Or no, You're a big was, XTC fan. Yeah, I was. I was. I was a big XTC fan, but um, throughout the whole show there was there was no weak link. All killer, no filler. <laughs> Every band had their own kind of interpretation of what New Wave was. In Excess played this power pop that had sort of elements of Scar in there. Flowers were displaying the Roxy music, Lou Reed, Ultravox influences. Okay. Um, magazine's music was cinematic and hypnotic. And XTC had actually moved on from the sort of punk pop they were doing to music that was a bit more sophisticated. Mm. But um, yeah, every band were great and it was a great night. This is one of my great regrets in life that I didn't go to this gig. And they've never been to Australia since. I mean, when they reformed, you know, 10 years or nine years ago, they didn't come out here. So, But Magazine did record an official live album. They did. Play play um, around that time, which was recorded at... Festival Hall in Melbourne. In Melbourne, yeah. yeah that's right. on, so that, same on, tour. on the same tour. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually played, I know we're jumping ahead a little bit here, but they played um, 18 gigs in Australia during August and September, mm. which is insane. Only one of them in Brisbane. So yeah, they, yeah. they must have played, I don't know, five or six times in Melbourne and Sydney. They played across yeah. the road from where we're sitting right now. I suppose, should we finish up, finish off Secondhand Daylight before we get too ahead of ourselves? I really like Secondhand Daylight and I think that, We've mentioned the cinematic quality mm. of, of the music. It came in a, in a gatefold sleeve too to yeah, make it even yeah, more yeah. cinematic, which was really unpunk. <laughs> to do. And the, I don't know whether you guys remember in the 70s there was a British cop show called Randall and Hopkirk Deceased. Do you guys remember that show? No. You guys are just youngsters. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll put some of it in. It's not the same, but it just reminds me of it. Just that intro bit before it gets into the song proper, but it's a really um, tense cinematic quality mm. about it. Well, when that bass and, and drum kicks in, I still get chills from that. Mm. I love that bit. And and the guitar, the little Goldfinger riff that he plays, <laughs> which is yeah. another reference for, to John Barry. And I think Rhythm it, of Cruelty is a classic post-punk song. Did you guys used to play that? Yes, we used yeah. to do it. That's why we, we stole the line from it Yeah, because uh, it was one of, the, one of the songs we played live. Mm. And I also yeah. want to mention that Talk to the Body and I Wanted Your Heart is more like, I thought that's more like what yeah. post-punk would become. Mm. Back to Nature, mm. great oral. I was going to say Back to Nature, the, the bass line, when that gets going, it's, it's chunky, a fantastic song. Yeah. It's not a bad song on, on this album, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a, a really good album, but I... I think I told you I'd put it at maybe number two. All right, we'll talk about that. <laughs> it's, it's my number one, as I think you've probably worked out. Mm. Mm. And do you have a favourite moment? On the album? On the album? Permafrost. A favourite moment? Mm. On Permafrost. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, the solo. Yeah, I was trying to prompt you to say that because listening to the solo, it starts off as a solo and then becomes two solos. Yeah. And I don't know whether two solos... Counts as a solo. Can you have a double solo? Is my question. Well, the like best a double part track about solo. It is, it's really just well, it's essentially two notes. You know, he's just mm. bending the notes and going back and forth between. Yeah. But then he starts layering over the top of it, and it, it's a non-solo solo. Mm, yeah, but yeah. it just builds and builds and builds, and and the bass is just doing what it's doing through the whole song mm. as well. I, I, mm. As I said, I think it's one of the, one of the all-time great mm. post-punk songs, and, yeah. and criminally underrated, unfortunately, for magazine. Mm. They never scaled the heights 
of real life again with the critics and this was the beginning of the end for him. <laughs> I, I honestly think it's Howard. I think he just was his own worst enemy around this time. He was being ridiculously... It was difficult in interviews? Difficult and, and really too enigmatic. And I saw some footage that you might have seen as well when he was in Australia and mm. the following year he was interviewed by Night Moves, I think, in a, in a mm. laundromat. In a laundry. And yeah. he had a cap on and, and he was just being almost John Lydon-esque of being difficult and, and mm. argumentative and just a bit of a dickhead, whereas... Lydon seemed to be able to get away with almost anything, whereas Howard yeah. Devoto wasn't forgiven those things and was just treated as super pretentious, which he was, yeah. but it was that w- was the, you, the character. You would have read more of his interviews or you would have taken more of his interviews in than I would have you know, at that time. Mm. Was he kind of annoying and difficult and pretentious in, in the print interviews? Well, he was, but he was sort of would try and challenge the journalists and kind okay. of give them a run for their money, whereas previously they'd enjoyed that. They almost yeah, started yeah, to get yeah, sick yeah. of it and get annoyed with it. And you know what the, the the English media was like in those days. If if they turned against you, that was the end of it. As you've said many times, the, the, their career was crueled yes. by the press. And just for the record, it got to number 38. 38. Chart, so, sure yeah, a bit it. of a drop mm. um, and confused a few people. Though they toured on it, they did everything, you know, it might have been around the time they toured with Simple Minds on mm-hmm. this album, I think, uh, a young Simple Minds, which would have been, that would have been fantastic to see. And they were a huge influence on Simple Minds. Absolutely, they were, yeah. Who named their first album Real Real Life. Life. They did, yeah. So shall we step into the shower and discover the correct use of soap? Or should we go under the floorboards first (laughs) for the January 1980 single? make of it? Probably the first magazine song that I was conscious of hearing was Song From Under the Floorboards, the live version. From Play. From Play, which Mm. was on the Vinyl Virgins compilation cassette. You just bought that because it had the word virgins in it. (laughs) (laughs) Or vinyl. Or vinyl. Well, I was only a school lad. That's right. I think I bought it because it had one of my favourite songs, Underpass by John Fox, yes. on it. And it was basically a compilation of acts who were on Virgin, so mm. including uh, Orchestra Moonies in the Dark, Human Public League, Image. Public Image, XTC. Yep. And so it was a really, you know, it, was a, it was a hell of a collection. And, yeah, the live version of Song from Under the Floorboards was on there. And I liked it, but I didn't love it because, it, like most live songs, it kind of lacked a bit of subtlety and you kind of couldn't really get a, mm. a strong sense of the song. So the most notable thing about it from my point of view and being a bit of a someone who liked reading Russian novels or certainly liked telling people I liked reading <laughs> Russian Pretending novels. Pretending to read <laughs> Russian novels. Um, the opening line of the song or the opening sentences, I am angry, I am ill and I'm as ugly as sin, mm. which is a reference to the opening sentences from Notes, Notes from, from Underground, Underground by yeah. Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky, yeah. Mm. And, yeah, I was, I was really kind of drawn to that aspect of it, but I wasn't overly familiar with the actual, you know, studio version. This is a song from This album was quite successful. May 1980, following the single release earlier, produced by Martin Hannett. A lot of people regard this album as their best, mm. their classic album, and I don't. And Barry Adamson agrees with me, if that yep. means anything. It's his least favourite. Um, he doesn't. So, did he say least least, least favourite of their albums? He said he doesn't like Martin Hannett's production. hasn't aged well, and it's too toppy. I would agree with that. Even the remastered version is too toppy. Martin Hannett probably needed a bit of a rest, <laughs> give, given what he just worked on. He'd been busy. He would just finished working on Closer, the yeah. Joy Division album. So it's like, give the guy a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> give him a break. He was difficult to work with, I think, but he got on quite well with Magazine because I think he respected them as musicians a bit mm. more than he respected Joy Division. Uh, rightly or wrongly. Yeah. But yeah, there's some good tracks on here. I should make a note that I'm a Party features saxophone by Raph Ravenstock, who played sax on Baker Street. For some reason or another, he was gotten in involved on this. I don't know why, given that John McGee could, could play this, but anyway. Yeah. Um, Graham, this is going to be your favourite. It was difficult for me to choose. Because I think all of their albums have extreme highlights and mm. lowlights as well. But yeah, if I was going to add a push, I'd pick this one as being my favourite. Why? It's purely the songs. Because you're frightened. Because 
model worker, I'm a party. The cover of Thank You, the Slain of Family Stone song. Great cover. And then it, it ends with a song from Under the Floorboards, which is my favourite song about decking. <laughs> but it's, um, which is just a classic. I, I really love it. It's probably my favourite uh, song of theirs. I think it struck a chord with people. I mean, it was still, they didn't get great press coverage. It was sort of hailed as a little bit of a return to form. But yeah, look, I can see the appeal and I, I, I really liked it at the time. But it seemed to be straining for some sort of pop credibility, mm. maybe. Maybe that's what they were doing. I mean, they really wanted to be successful. They wanted those things. And yeah. for the, you know, they'd had that early success, and I think they thought it was going to be easy that whatever they did would work. So this was kind of a return to trying to do that, I think. Well, Howard did say that there was a decision to have a lighter feel to the album. But still and, with the heavy lyrics, I yeah. could have been Rashkolnikov, but Mother Nature ripped me off. I mean, that's not everybody's <laughs> going to understand that, another, Patrick. I know another you did. Dostoevsky Another reference. Dostoevsky lyric. Yeah. yeah, and I was surprised listening to the album at how poppy and how kind of, kind of lightweight mm. it is. It was almost like they were doing everything they possibly could not to be labelled prog. So it was almost a really strong reaction to the critics of the previous album. And mm. the progness, I mean, a song like Permafrost, slow, doomy, contemplative. And Sludge. That's what I loved. That's what you want from the previous album. Yeah, yeah, that's the, yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah. the kind of faster, the more kind of XTC-ish kind of stuff was not mm. the stuff that I loved. And mm. a song like Because You're Frightened, I really like the song, mm. but it could almost be by Plastic Bertrand. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of Plastic Bertrand. But <laughs> over the course of an album, it just doesn't have the same emotional impact for me, even though, as you say, Graham, on a song-by-song basis, there were some really... It's a really catchy, diverse album if mm. you kind of look at it from that mm. point of view. As an album, I think it does stand up, but but yeah, it isn't the kind of thing that I love about about yeah. post-punk. I love You Never Knew Me and I Want to Burn Again. I think they're really good magazine tracks. But it, yeah, it just felt a bit lost, a little bit, I don't know, they didn't have the vision that I felt they had with Secondhand Daylight of the Future. This was kind of trying to please people a little mm. bit for me. I still like it and it reached number 28, so, you know, who am I to say? They did release a single after this album, which I'm absolutely ashamed to say I'd never heard, and it wasn't released in Australia. It's upside down. Yeah, and it's not a great song particularly. No, no. And I don't know why it was a single. I can see why it wasn't on the album, but I'm really ashamed that I never heard it. So I don't <laughs> know what happened there. Should we talk about the fact that soon after this album, three members went off to work in Visage? <laughs> We've talked about, with reference to Ultravox before, but a bit of a strange thing to do to have three members of your band, basically most of magazine, yeah, yeah. come in and play on their Visage album just the, for something different. The to musical do link between the Buzzcocks and Visage is not is not necessarily clear, and yet it's a direct line. They had more success with Fade to Grey and that album than they had with any of the stuff they'd done with mm. magazine, and I think that may have sort of sowed the seeds a little bit for what was to come down the track because after this album, John McGeoch left for Susie and the Banshees. He kind of was courted by Susie and the Banshees, mm. by Steve Severin in particular, because they loved what he did with Magazine. And as Steve Severin said, uh, we were the mistress and we eventually got him to leave his wife, <laughs> which doesn't often happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Howard partly blamed the departure of, of McGee on the fact that Magazine moved to London at some stage from oh. from Manchester, which meant that suddenly McGee was available for kind of session work. Mm. That's where his work on Visage and that's where he kind of played a bit with the Banshees. Well, I think he'd been noted. I mean, people had seen what he was doing. Mm. And he was like, who's this guy? Mm. And you know what bands are like? If they can kind of pinch somebody for their band, they will. Because the Banshees didn't have a guitarist. They had to use Robert Smith there for a little while, remember? Yeah. He was playing in both yeah. bands um, because their guitarist had, had walked out on them, so they were kind of caught between two chairs. Yeah. And then he went, goes on to play on the three best Banshees albums. But that's for <laughs> another podcast, which is the second one, if you'd care to listen to that. Well, Howard did say um, McGeoch was there in London. He could help you out on your record and very good he'd be too. There was no acrimony, no rancour. He, as in McGeoch, was thoroughly the gentleman about it in terms of departing the band. So 
the kind of good-naturedness of people leaving bands, you know, um, whether it's Devoto leaving Buzzcocks or McGeoch leaving Magazine, it's all, it's all very gentlemanly. It's all very nice, isn't it? And, and then they all work on each other's albums down the track. Yeah, it's, yeah. All, it's all quite lovely. Can I just say that I thought for many years that I saw John McGeoch play live. But and, you didn't. But I didn't. Which think, leads us nicely into the next. I think around the time he passed away, I remember thinking, Oh, I must have seen him live, but he actually didn't play on that Australian tour. No, he played on a couple of dates on that tour, but had left by the time it arrived in Australia. They played in Australia, I think, in September, October 1980. And who was on guitar? Robin Simon of Ultravox, who was at a loose end Mm. at the time. (laughs) Funnily enough. Funnily enough, yeah. So he uh, quickly learnt uh, the the, uh, three albums, what was needed, and... um, took to the stage for, for that um, tour, which uh, was the album play, which um, was recorded in uh, Melbourne Festival Hall, 6th of September 1980. Uh, it's a fine album. Mm. It's a nice compilation of this stuff. Interestingly enough, Dave McCulloch, our old friend from Sounds, gave the live version of Give Me Everything 5 out of 5. He said it was a storming track opener. Beautiful stuff. He needs as to a, make his own mind up. As opposed to <laughs> sod off you baldy little pain, he said, uh, <laughs> two years prior. So, uh, yeah, nice one, Dave. Anyway, yeah. uh, it's prerogative the, to change their mind. Yeah, no, that's right. Regarding McGeoch leaving, uh, according to Dave Formula, it was partly because of the lack of success of the band and partly because of Howard's attitude to the press, mm. which was kind of interesting. So I guess McGeoch felt that the band was never going to kind of cut through. And there's a whole kind of discussion to be had about why magazine didn't cut through and maybe they didn't quite have the hit single to make it through. Howard himself was, he was a charismatic performer, but he wasn't, you know, a heartthrob. Mm. And, you know, there were some good-looking geezers out front of bands, Robert Smith, Ian McCulloch and so on. And they had one of the most forgettable names in post-punk as magazine, which sounds like it was chosen by a committee. (laughs) And See, I like the name, but I, I get what you're saying. I mean, look, we'll talk about this later, but Simon Draper, the head of Virgin, was talking about this when they signed Simple Minds, and he said, why do we want Simple Minds? They're not as good as Magazine, but Jim Kerr had sex appeal, which okay. was, was the reason why he feels that Simple mm. Minds were hugely successful and were able to turn that into stadium rock. Magazine could have done that with a different singer. He you know, Howard's singing style is not for everyone. His yeah. tone is not for everyone. But it is post-punk. That's what we forget. At the mm. time, it was perfect for that. But Absolutely. they quickly sort of uh, evolved into something else and became the New Romantic era, which, you know, mm. didn't suit magazine at all. Well, this is 1980 we're talking about. It's never surprised me that magazine weren't huge mm. because of Howard DeVoto. Yeah. And, and I, I like listening to him. I think his voice is perfect for magazine. Yeah, and it's but distinctive. I, I can't imagine, like, America... Latching onto it. It suited the music perfectly, but it was never, it, look, it was his band, and I guess he was the reason for the, their success and lack of success. Um, shall we move on to the final album? Magic Murder in the Weather. June 1981. <laughs> So Robin Simon had now He departed. just did the tour, that was it. Um, gone to work with John Fox on The Garden. This was kind of produced by the band, I suppose. Martin hadn't ended up mixing it afterwards. was preceded by About the Weather, the single, uh, first track on the album, I think. Nice enough. Um, <laughs> I will say that it's more soul-sounding, the mm. album. It was mostly written by Dave Formula. Ben Mandelson is on guitar. He was a friend of Howard DeVoto's. No, John McGeoch, it's really noticeable to me. This the album absence. lacks that McGeoch touch. What what um, do you think of the guitar playing? I don't mind it. It's it's a it's fine. It's it's adequate. Um Barry, I'll quote him again, wasn't happy about um, Ben Mandelson being in there. Okay. He said this guy, you know, he doesn't play bar chords even. He he let alone whatever else. He doesn't even smoke cigarettes. He's, you know, he how does he fit into this band? He just wasn't <laughs> happy with him being in the band. But I think it was the start of the end for the band. Mm. Barry had met the birthday party by this stage. There's a story that he had been hanging out with them in Melbourne, but he will have come across them in London, no doubt. And he was looking to move towards a more darker kind of thing that appealed to him. He felt like magazine weren't getting anywhere and John had left. Howard calls the album an aberration, which mm. I think is um, a good way of describing it. Graham, this is probably your well, second favourite? or Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't hear it at the time, although when I started listening to it, 
I realized that I knew the song about the weather really well. So I don't know whether Triple Z at the time. It was a single. It, so yeah, mm. yeah. What's interesting about that is that there is almost like a yacht rock kind of Doobie Brothers like keyboard bit in it. Mm. A Motown but, feel. Very, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's still got a really interesting chord progression in it, um, but that little keyboard part, they must have listened to that and thought, hey, this we're on to a winner here. There's some good songs on it. I mean, I like Vigilance, um, Great Man's Secrets, you know, Suburban Ronda. There's some good songs on it. It just doesn't grip me. And I suppose it's, once again, if you're expecting something, if it was their first album, you might be quite mm. quite happy with that. There's a great little uh, little bit of info about the song Come Alive, which was inspired by the Chinese interpretation of a Pepsi Cola ad, which they turned into Come Alive. Come Alive with Pepsi to Pepsi Brings Your Ancestors Back from the Grave. That was the literal translation of that, <laughs> which Howard used. Um, this had been an ad campaign, obviously, in China. Uh, Howard used as a line in the song, which I think is kind of uh, probably mm. a quite rare thing. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Patty, what did you make of it? There are some songs I really like. Uh, as you say, Great Man's Secrets, Vigilance. I think this album is all about um, Barry, and he really saves some of the early songs. So, so Lucky, uh, Honeymoon Killers. Great track. Some really good kind of bass playing, reminiscent of um, Mick Calm right. as well, like a little bit, a little bit of that happening. Uh, yeah, so uh, this poison I quite like as well, and uh, yeah, it is again a little bit kind of lightweight and uh, kind of lacking kind of emotional. It's a real play punch. for for commercial success by yeah, the sound of it, yeah. isn't it? I mean, this is June 1981. The ground has shifted. A yeah, lot's yeah. happened. And it's kind of considered, I think, by magazine fans to be a good point to end. Yeah. Well, <laughs> because I, they'd kind of lost the magic. Well, I think the band agreed with it and Howard sort of quit virtually mm. at the end of the recording and there was no tour to support it. And so he kind of just made the decision, issued a statement of some sort and yeah, you know, left. Yeah. It was as successful as their previous albums, more yeah. or less, all of their albums. Magic, Murder and the Weather got to number 39 on the charts. All of the albums got to between number 28 and number 39. Yeah. So the public had exactly the same opinion of all four albums. Yeah, there was no growth there. And um, I guess it was a good time to quit. Though, though Barry Adamson was still angry at Howard in 2006, he said. He only just got over it oh. for Howard leaving. Uh, so even though Barry Adamson went on to great things, well, you know, I don't think better things, but he went on to great things with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and his mm. soundtrack work and everything else that he's done. His solo albums, I thought. Were yeah, really yeah, good. he's he's done very well for himself. And um, but this was his first band, you know, and I suppose yeah. he was he was cut when that happened, as you mm. are. Well, he couldn't even play when they started. That's so right. He, he only had two strings the night before. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would agree. It's my least favourite of their albums, and probably most ma magazine aficionados would agree. But yeah, so overall, as we re reflect on the work of magazine, if you think of who has covered their songs over the years, Peter Murphy from Bauhaus, uh, Morrissey, Radiohead, as we've said, John Frusciante, is that how yeah, you from the Red from Hot Chili Peppers. Red Hot Chili Peppers, yeah. as John McGeoch said about the band, which I think is a is a good summation of them. That uh, magazine were always a connoisseur's choice. We broke new ground. We set the tone for the next 20, 30 years, but we never made much money. Look, I would agree with that. In my notes here, I said magazine have craved the success and recognition that they never really got, even though that wasn't cool. That's what they wanted. And Howard was the leader of the group and he was instrumental in what they achieved, but he was also the biggest problem they had. <laughs> he held them back because he was pretentious, difficult, intellectual, bad relationship with the press. All of those things, he just didn't want to play the game, but that was part of the appeal as well. Like that's what myself and, and, the, and the other guys loved about it because that's exactly what you wanted from a band. And he did that. They changed the game in so many ways. The graphics, the, the way that they presented themselves, the ambition and the scope of what they tried to do. They played 215 gigs, five albums, nine singles in four years, and they left the post-punk landscape forever changed and, as you say, influenced the next 20 or 30 years. 